0: God's Judgment Upon Gog, Asher Brown Duran Throughout Ministries of Mercy, 1. Keller uses a dichotomy between businesses and money, and the church and ministries of mercy. The church is generally considered by Keller to be relatively righteous to the degree that it embraces asceticism, and businesses are considered by Keller to be relatively evil to the degree that they do not action socially. This essay functions as a running commentary on the more extreme statements that Keller makes and the unfortunate logical consequences of these statements. Some of these statements are contrasted in this essay with statements by the the theologian Wayne Grudem and the economists F.A. Hayek and Thomas Sowell. Keller cites statistics about the poor, and that the poor are getting poorer, but ignores rising standards of living. 2. He seems to have no knowledge of the homeless rate changes between the civil rights movement and legislation following that had a deleterious effect on work ethics of all races. 3. Ignoring data on incentives that involve single-parent homes, Keller implies that poverty is encouraged by welfare rollbacks. 4. The economist Thomas Sowell in the quest for cosmic justice states that what is defined as the poor is incredibly misleading, with many going into and out of this category frequently. Greater than more who began in the bottom 20% had reached the top 20% by the end of that period than remained where they were. Yet the poor continue to be identified as the bottom 20%, instead of the 3% who remain at the bottom. 5. Using economic terms as Keller does can have unforeseen consequences. Using undefined terms often results in an emphasis on the importance of power. In discrimination and disparities, Sol mentions some errors that occur in calculating monetary categories. Greater than statistical errors of commission include lumping together data on things that are fundamentally different, such as salaries and capital gains, producing numbers that are simply called income. But calling things by the same word does not make them the same things. Other errors of commission include discussing statistical brackets as if they represented a given set of flesh and blood human beings called the rich, the poor, or the top 1%, for example. Errors of commission also include using survey research to resolve factual issues that the inherent limitations of survey research make it unable to resolve. 6. Defining terms such as the poor vaguely means that the ability to help the poor is hindered, because the term in the group it is meant to define is elusive. If the poor are to be helped, the term in the group must be clearly defined. The value of the clear definition of words by soul is underlined. The validity of numbers in general often depends on the reliability of the words describing what those numbers are measuring. 7. If words are not clearly defined, people begin to talk and act like Humpty Dumpty and Alice in Wonderland. They often then begin to speak as if all that matters is power. Soul goes on to speak of the danger of acting emotionally rather discerning causal factors. Greater than morally neutral factors seem to attract far less attention than other causal factors which stir moral outrage, such as discrimination or exploitation. But our emotional responses tell us nothing about the causal weight of different factors, however much those emotional responses may shape political crusades and government policies, but which causal factors predominate at a given place or time is ultimately an empirical question, independent of our emotions or inclinations. 8. Moral Outrage at the Rich May Feel Good but may actually hurt the poor. One of the central premises of Sol's book is that disparities do not imply discrimination, and that claims of that need to be proved with evidence, rather than automatic presumption. 9. For historical example, the train company involved in Plessy v. Ferguson, sided with the discriminated Plessy against the Supreme Court. In this case, it was the Supreme Court that discriminated between races rather than the market. In the previous book, in Civil Rights, 10, and in his book White Liberals and Black Rednecks, Seoul states that it was the free market that discouraged racism in the 1960s, not legislation. 11. The legislation was just a side effect of the market. In fact, it was the state government, not the bus company in Alabama that forced unequal treatment on Rosa Parks. The bus company wanted to follow the profit incentive that reduced racism as a result. It might be said that racism is a form of collectivism, and that individualism promoted by the free market helped discourage racism the state government forced the bus company to segregate by race, rather than treating each person as an individual as the company wanted. In other words, individualism encourages individuals to be judged by the content of their character, and not their membership in a group. Returning to Keller's book, Keller tries to draw a distinction between capitalism and communism, we cannot be viewed individualistically, as capitalists do, or collectivistically, as the communists do, but as related to God. 12. Neither of these terms is clearly defined by Keller. As a result, individualism and capitalism are indirectly equated with communism as unhealthy extremes on either side of a scale. By contrast, economists of the Austrian school usually define individualism as the belief that individuals are ends in themselves, and not means to perpetuate a system, as in communism. In later books, Keller tends to use a definition of individualism that is closer to this. 12.5 Keller uses Deuteronomy 6-5 and Leviticus 19-18 as a vague proof that the Christian should be absorbed in God alone. 13. Keller almost states that the Church should do social work, and equates true faith with a sensitive social conscience, without defining what he means by social. 14. Keller states that all leads to alienation to God, therefore social action is required. 15. Keller associates mercy with obedience and wealth with sin. Greater than mercy to the poor is an evidence of true heart commitment to God. Wealth is to be shared so generously that much of the economic distance between rich and poor diminishes. 16. Keller states that I Timothy 6 17-19 requires Christians to denounce materialism. 17. Another way of stating this is that hope in wealth rather than God is a fruit of the flesh in Christian terminology, and not of the Spirit. Keller's is a questionable monetary dichotomy that has predictable outcomes. Keller tries to use Matthew 20 26-28 and Galatians 6 10 to prove that because we are united to Christ, every believer is a deacon, as well as Hebrews 13 13-16 to prove that every believer is a royal priest, whose sacrifices to God include deeds of mercy. 18, this seems to be stretching the definition of both terms. A better term might have been steward, because it is hypothetically less susceptible to a fortress church mentality of which he speaks negatively later. It may be that Keller leaned toward Christ's offices because a steward sounded too close to his perception of the concept of money. Keller also uses the term alienation, which is heavily associated with Marx's terminology in the mind of economists fairly liberally. 19. Earlier in the book Keller mentions class struggle, among others things, as being an effect of the fall, racism, crime, scarcity of resources, class struggle, these social problems are the results of our alienation god. 20. Implicitly replacing an estate of sin and misery from a famous catechism with alienation is a questionable tact. 21. This is not a frame that should be uncritically accepted. The Westminster Larger Catechism states the effects of the fall. The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Keller at times almost implies that this is synonymous with alienation which is a term used by Marxists. The language of alienation, which Keller borrows, disappears from Marx's language in his later work, but the idea of instruments becoming the enslavers of their masters continues according to Thomas Sowell in his book on the subject. 22. Keller makes questionable use of the words manipulation and compassion, it will not be enough to manipulate American Christians to feel guilty because they are so rich. 23. Keller goes on to say that Christians should be compassionate. A case could be made that throughout the book, Keller uses statistics and stories to make anyone feel guilty that they are not poor. As will be shown later, he states that it is impossible to help the poor without feeling the pain of the poor, by being poor or at least feeling pain, and that this is the only way to truly help them. Curiously, Keller comes closes to saying that the Church is a simulation of the Kingdom of God. 24. Keller then deconstructs the word menial. 25. Some work is inherently painful, regardless of attitude. Keller comes close to articulating a dichotomy in Christian circles, he talks as if self-reliance is a sin, but self-sufficiency is a virtue. The Church is to help the poor to self-sufficiency, but at the same time convince them of their prideful self-reliance. 26. This could be formulated this way, poor in spirit equals the absence of self-reliance. 27. The fact that self-reliance and self-sufficiency are synonymous to most people is never discussed, so this dichotomy remains unsolved and undealt with. Keller equates Christians with prostitutes, when a Christian sees prostitutes, he knows that he is looking in a mirror. 28. This can degenerate in the antinomian conception that good works done through Christ are viewed by God as menstrual cloths. Keller then uses the parable of the infinite sum to teach unconditional forgiveness. 29. It should be noted that in the Bible, God never requires unconditional forgiveness without seeking to stop the sin that is being forgiven. 30. By contrast to Keller, the theologian Mark Jones states that using Isaiah 64:6 6 to represent good works is a great mistake greater than this verse is not speaking about good works, but about outward displays of religiosity, as evidenced in chapter 58. To make this verse determinative for how we understand all of our good works goes well beyond what is warranted by Scripture. 31. If in the Christian worldview, God gave good works to be done before the creation of the fabric of the world, then they can hardly be compared to such legalism, in Jones's view. Jones indicates that comparing good works with such sin grieves the Holy Spirit. 32 this has understanding of works has economic implications for the Protestant work ethic. Keller states that the Christian's view of himself is complete equality with others, I am completely equal with all other people. 33, this is true from the cosmic vision, of which Thomas Sowell speaks in a book of the same name, wherein all can be seen, but humans do not have access to this vision. 34, they can only simulate it, because they cannot see all of history in hindsight from Judgment Day nor can they foresee the unforeseen consequences that can accrue from the best of intentions. Keller defines humility, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. 35, this line is often attributed to C.S. Lewis, but I have yet to find the source. This definition of humility grinds against Keller's equating of the spiritual state of believers with those of ill or questionable repute a few pages earlier. The connection between the terms humility— self-reliance, and self-sufficiency on an economic dimension is not addressed. Keller's questionable use of terms continues on the economic dimension when he extols austere living and casts doubt on investing. 36. He equates the love of money with a continuous drive to increase our standard of living. 37. The problem with this formulation is that it is the very saving and investing that the Puritans viewed as a form of charity that has increased the standard of living for the poor for hundreds of years in Western civilization. To say that equating the love of money with increasing the standard of living for the poor is problematic to say the least. In Christian terms, love of money shows that love is morally neutral without application to an object. In biblical terms, love applied to money can really be hatred of God, a fruit of the flesh, not the spirit. In the end, money is a neutral object, like alcohol. It is only its misuse that can be good or bad. Like good works, any Christian who label money as filthy when it is an indifferent thing in the Christian worldview, Are in their skewed worldview, placing their associations on God's creation. Keller states that what separates Christians from pagans is trust in God for material provision. 38. While this is true in the abstract, the reduction of the standard of living to an ascetic standard is a questionable direction for a Protestant to encourage. Belief in ascetism for the economic macro order might affect changes in legislation that appear to help the poor but which actually hurts them and everyone else materially, while possibly increasing their realization of their non-physical needs. In the service of this direction, Keller quotes John Wesley taking Matthew 6:19 to 20 out of context to translate it as the Christian who has more than the plain necessaries of life lives in an open, habitual denial of the Lord he has gained riches in hellfire. 39 While he does not go into this extreme explicitly, Keller does not condemn this jeremiatal stretching of scripture for persuasive purposes that he quotes in full. It is relevant that the Overton window works as an understanding of the fallacy of a false middle, when both extremes are considered non-rational. Keller also states that there should not be rich living Christians. 40. The fact that the average millionaire does not live a lavish lifestyle, as Thomas Sowell notes in one of his books, is not considered. 41. Keller encourages justice living, we must give so that we feel the burden of the needy ourselves. 42. Keller uses Edwards as an authority on this subject. On the surface, it sounds like a logical syllogism that in order to help someone, you must feel their burden, and that to help the poor, one must feel their burden, but this does not follow. While being in an evil or difficult state of affairs can help one to empathize with those in similar situation, and this promotes a sense of equality through shared experience, it is by no means clear that one must feel the burden of being poor in order to help poor people. This felt need for economic equality exhorted by Keller is reminiscent of a longing for Sparta that the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek mentions in The Fatal Conceit. Greater than in Greece it was of course chiefly the Spartans, the people who resisted the commercial revolution most strongly, who did not recognize individual property but allowed and even encouraged theft. To our time they have remained the prototype of savages who rejected civilization, for represented 18th-century views on them compare Dr. Samuel Johnson in Boswell's Life or Friedrich Schiller's essay Uber die Gesetze gebong like Ergos and Solon. Yet already in Plato and Aristotle, however, we find a nostalgic longing for return to Spartan practice, and this longing persists to the present. It is a craving for a micro-order determined by the overview of omniscient authority. 43. It should be remembered that the Roman historian Plutarch is the main source for what we know about the Spartans. In his life of Lycurgus, Plutarch describes Sparta as a totalitarian system. 44. Sparta is believed to have heavily inspired Plato's totalitarian vision of the Republic. 45. Contrary to Keller, the founder of economics, Adam Smith, in his famous passage casts doubt on those who seek the public good of others. Greater than is every individual, therefore, endeavors as much as he can, both to employ his capital in the support of domestic industry, and so to direct that industry that its produce may be of the greatest value, every individual necessarily labors to render the annual revenue of the society as great as he can. He generally, indeed, neither intends to promote the public interest, nor knows how much he is promoting it. By preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry he intends only his own security, and by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worse for the society that it was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I have never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. It is an affectation, indeed, not very common among merchants, and very few words need be employed in dissuading them from it. 45.5. According to Smith, under a free market system, such as capitalism, everyone benefits in a positive sum gain, regardless of the inner intentions of the individuals providing services. By contrast, Keller's words extolling the value of taking on others' burdens implies a zero-sum game in which sacrifice is the only way to benefit others. Returning to Keller's book, Keller sometimes proceeds to oddly specific duties. Greater than every Christian family, needs to have the poor into their homes for meals. Christians who reduce their lifestyle to begin projects to help the needy will find spiritual growth for themselves and their families. Newton and others discouraged inordinate investments in savings and retirement funds. Every person and family must minister in mercy. 46. Keller's very specific injunction in this case skirts the boundaries of legalism. This also highlights Keller's focus on intentions of the benefactor rather than on the actual benefits to those he seeks to help. Echoing Adam Smith, Friedrich Hayek wrote in The Fatal Conceit that intentions are not the primary factor in achieving good ends for others beyond ourselves. Greater than in the sense of inculcating conduct that benefits others, all systems of greater than morality, of course, commend altruistic action, but the question is how to. Greater than accomplish this. Good intentions will not suffice, we all know what. Greater than road they pave. Guidance strictly by perceivable favorable effects on. Greater than particular other persons is insufficient for, and even irreconcilable with. Greater than the extended order. The morals of the market do lead us to benefit. Greater than others, not by our intending to do so, but by making us act in a manner. Greater than which, nonetheless, will have just that effect. The extended order. Greater than circumvents individual ignorance, and thus also adapts us to the greater than unknown, as discussed above, in a way that good intentions alone greater than cannot do, and thereby does make our efforts altruistic in their effects. 46.5. Like Adam Smith, Hayek does not see good intentions as necessary to benefit others in a market system. The net benefit, however, he sees as altruistic in nature. Returning to Keller, his ordering of specific duties as absolute skirts of legalism, all individuals and families have a responsibility to develop their own ministries of mercy. 47. Keller's desire to be totally absorbed in God seems to take the form of a fortress church mentality that ironically views physical property with suspicion. The Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek says that if pushed too far, the impulse to devalue individual property and emphasize collective ownership can result in totalitarian regimes that necessarily devalue if not dehumanize and genocide a minority as a scapegoat. 48. Keller once again focuses on the intentions rather than results, let's remind our conscience that we will always have a tendency to rationalize too much investment in our family rather than the poor. 49, while this may be a good intention, this once again ignores results. He does not acknowledge the possibility that Walmart does more for the poor in selling products than the church in giving away products. Buying products from Walmart may in fact benefit the poor through reducing prices more than the church's charity. This also ignores facts like that Walmart claims on the front page of its website 50, to give away over a billion dollars every year. It should be borne in mind that in cities all around the world, including Keller's home city of New York, political movements to end unfair rent control lead to unforeseen consequences, such as housing shortages 51, and murder. 52. Keller begins to bend the definition of justice. Greater than perhaps. We must call Christians not to simple living, but to justice living. The relief of the poor is not only an act of mercy, but also of justice. 53. The very idea of mercy is that it is undeserved. 54. The idea of mercy comes from the fact that justice exists. Conflating justice with mercy is not helpful in creating more mercy. As Adam Smith says, mercy to the guilty is cruelty to the innocent. 54.5. Keller concludes this section by speaking about the standard of living in general, The Bible calls Christians to be content with a standard of living which is moderate, based mainly on the necessities of life. 55, as mentioned earlier, there are a number of leaps in logic in Keller's application of a number of verses. It recalls C.S. Lewis stating that the part of Christianity regarding the belief that enjoyment is wrong was barred from the Stoics, 56, even though Lewis probably should have blamed Plato. Keller briefly uses the biblical Joseph's hunger relief program during his economic dictatorship of Egypt as an example that the government should administer mercy. 57. He also mentions that Thomas Chalmers taught that the church could deal with the moral and spiritual roots of poverty. 58. Of course, Keller does not mention that this was during the 1800s rather than now, and downplays the fact that Jesus said that there will always be the poor. He implies that Chalmers' work can and should be duplicated in this time. Keller focuses on the intentions, our mercy to the poor must be such as to make the poor merciful themselves. 59. While this may be a noble desire, this is once again focusing on the psyches of others, which are neither manipulated nor shaped easily. The whole person is to be ministered to, but biblically speaking, the changing of souls is not in the power of man. Keller backtracks some by saying that those who reject the message will be further hardened. 60. He also states that we may cut off our aid only if it is unmerciful to continue it. 60.5, Keller rides a fine line in that he states earlier that we should give unconditionally, but that conditions sort of come later. Keller lengthens the definition of a minister of mercy. Greater than ministers of mercy are unique in that they intentionally and systematically seek to build bridges with all the people around them at home, at work, and at church. They do this to discover needs and to create a climate in which others can share their weaknesses. 61. Again, Keller uses a fortress church mentality to suggest that economic needs can only be met by the church. It is not obvious how the free market is incapable of creating a climate in which individuals can share weaknesses. To this end, Keller uses some questionable language regarding motivation, the real key to mercy ministry is motivated by lay volunteers. 62. Hearts. Must be melted, to generate motivation. 63. Keller implies that it is the minister's responsibility to melt hearts. Where in the Bible that volunteering is presented as intrinsically better than under economic transactions is not clearly specified. Keller does somewhat counterbalance some of these statements by mentioning that this can lead to legalism. Greater than many Christians who wish to motivate their congregation to deeds of mercy are completely ineffective because of their own impatience and self-righteousness. Self-righteousness destroys any impulses to mercy. 64. Example is the best argument. Words are vanity if not manifested into action but Keller implying that the church can handle economic transactions better than the free market could itself be seen as a form of self-righteousness. Keller tries to tie Christ as an example of volunteering as being inherently better than business, the foot washing was an exposition of Luke 22:24 24-27 and thus a pattern for the ministry of service that all Christians must have. 65. Keller asserts that serving others decreases depression and that a Christian is no man's creditor and every man's debtor. 66. Because a servant serves without pride. Because pride is often a vaguely defined and nebulous concept, the possibility that a servant could be proud of being associated with his master is not discussed. The freed slave and author Frederick Douglass stated that in Antebellum South, slaves often boasted with pride that their master could beat up another slave's master. 67 So pride still exists even in slaves. It could be argued that the pride engendered in the British Navy when a captain was executed by headshot for retreating spurred the British to become powerful and aggressive enough to later end the slave trade over the Atlantic. 68. Keller strays into Marxian straits when he places the church at the center of economic activity, most church people have never learned that their physical, economic, and other practical needs are to be met through the local church. 69. As the theologian Wayne Grudemass said, in business to the glory of God, 70, the situation of the Christians in the first century were not normal. Inequality is necessary for diversity, and outside of being a bearer of God's image, equality is neither fundamentally good nor, as Thomas Sowell states, easily definable. 71, the quest for equality is often a mirage that creates greater inequality. A demand for equality may be a camouflaged envious call for others' achievements, like businessmen, to be castigated for benefiting the poor economically. Keller uses questionable class language, interminable research can eventually become an excuse for inaction, but spiritual profiles should be written for certain people groups. 72. While his purpose is to make people real rather than statistics, this wording is concerning because it implies that spiritual states can be known psychically through mind-reading. Once again, as Wayne Grudem says, inequality is required for diversity, be it in talents, interests, sins, or other factors. Keller gets into some low-tier mysticism when he states the offices of every believer— Every believer is a prophet, a priest, and a king. 73. It is not obvious that applying Christ's offices according to the Westminster Larger Catechism to the entire Church, or the body of Christ, is a clarifying statement. 74. He also frames human sympathies as vibrating frequencies to which people can respond. 75. While this is consistent with the metaphor of the Church as the body of Christ, identifying each member of the body of Christ with all of Christ's offices is problematic because of the depravity of individuals. He also states that a high view of the ministerial office can lead to clericalism and pride in the clergy, which can also manifest a fortress-church mentality when inculcated in the laity. 76. Keller's language regarding money reflects Aristotle's dichotomy between desire and the use of money. Greater-than-leadership should not try to institutionalize the ministry, maintaining its membership with guilt-inducing pleas for volunteers, and so on. Mission groups live by God-given calling and desire. 77. By contrasting the desire of the laity and the desire of businesses, Keller implies that the church is inherently more natural and good than businesses. Brutum in his book, by contrast, states repeatedly and emphatically that business is fundamentally good. Keller blames individualism for the lack of ministries of mercy, one of the main reasons that churches do not develop effective mercy ministries is American individualism. 78, this is the part of the book where Keller's Marxist leanings come into better focus, individualism is not defined. Keller's views of money are reminiscent of Aristotle's view of money, which he views as unnatural. 79. Keller begins to swerve into Marxian territory when he used the language of class captivity. 80. He provides no evidence that individualism is more prone to self-idolatry than any other system, nor does he provide an alternative, other than what amounts to a fortress church mentality with a few extra steps. Keller goes into more extreme statements about corporations. Greater than another reason why American Christians are confused about social reform is that they cannot grasp the idea of systemic evil, underlying legal, administrative, and policy conditions and institutions which create and sustain needs among certain groups of people. To become concrete, we may remember the example at the end of chapter 10, a church discovered that one of the reasons so many elderly in the community lived in or near poverty was that the main employer in town provided retirees with a dismally small pension. Should Christians discuss with the corporation its unfairly low benefits, Jeremiah twenty two thirteen. 13 The corporation may be full of well-meaning, good citizens, even Christians, and no individual there intends to gouge poor elderly people. Yet, can we say that the corporation is not guilty of evil? And can we tell individuals that they are, to some degree, involved in the guilt? The answer to both questions are, sick, yes. 81. These statements belie a total economic lack of understanding of the importance of the enforceability of contracts. Rhetoric such as this is often used through legislation to give charity to the poor, which usually hurts the poor by distorting the market, and letting the average person think that he already gives half of his money to the poor through charity alone. The government seeking to help the poor has a record of usually doing the opposite. This language points to a larger conflict of visions, which is also the name of a book by Thomas Sowell. Economists tend to define individualism and capitalism as economic systems, and in terms of opposition to the use of coercion to bring about cooperation between individuals, where people are allowed to pursue what they value so long as they do not violate the established rules, and businesses are allowed to pursue profits and keep what they earn. Theologians tend to define individualism as a completely self-centered lifestyle in which people seek only the satisfaction of their own personal desires. Economists tend to define collectivism or socialism as economic systems and in terms of the use of coercion and central planning to achieve the outcome deemed best for the group by the planners. Theologians tend to define a Christ-centered lifestyle as seeking the good of others, and this sometimes merges with a conception of collectivism. In Keller's case, this turns into a vision of a collectivized fortress church and a demonization of both business and individualism. Economic endeavors are dichotomized in Keller's view into self-centered capitalist individualism, in which businesses seek their own profit rather than the benefit of others on the one hand, and a Christ-centered collectivistic socialism, in which people and government attempt to do what is in the best interest of others, because the welfare of the community as a whole is given high priority on the other. Keller's view of the moral status of individualism and capitalism is not shared by the theologian Wayne Grudem. Some of Keller's statements regarding business and individualism can be answered with an outline of what the achievement of his stated ends would entail. The Austrian economist, Friedrich Hayek stated in The Road to Serfdom, that when a government restrains competition and monopoly, they tend to create monopoly, which generally hurts both workers and consumers. 82. Businesses in this situation can become warring factions pleading for special consideration from the governing body. 83. If this is pursued fully, a delegation can make arbitrary pronouncements as if they were objective. 84. The ensuing economic chaos brings calls for an economic dictator. 85. Hayek goes on to say that for rules to be effective they should be applied always without exceptions, in order for equity under the law and predictable behavior to exist. 86. Instead of following consistent rules, an economic dictator draws power from the lowest common denominator's need for action, and uses a minority as a scapegoat. 87. Hayek notes that German anti-Semitism and anti-capitalism spring from the same root. 88. Racism has much more to do with the devaluation of individual rights than is commonly thought the termination of mass accumulations of such power is slavery, and citizens become raw material for the state. 89. In this way Hayek states that the individualistic nature of commerce is farther removed from slavery than more militaristic absorption into the collective. 90. What began as a quest to defeat an evil system may turn into a system in which readiness to do bad things becomes a path to promotion and power. 91. What begins as a striving for equality by directed economy necessarily turns into officially enforced inequality, and finally authoritarian determination. 92. In such a system, only the dictator has power, and his opinions are portrayed as facts, then as scientific theories, when they are really platonic noble lies. 93. As a result, language becomes despoiled, and words become empty shells deprived of any definite meaning as capable of denoting one thing as its opposite and used solely for the emotional associations which still adhere to them. 94, the more individualism is crushed, the machinery of monopoly becomes identical with the machinery of the state, and only a naked rule of force remains. 95, Keller's book might have been very different if he had read The Road to Serfdom. Returning to Keller's book, Keller goes on to cite John Murray's fallacy of individualism and independentism and ties as to Acon. He then tries to tie this to society as a whole. Greater than what does this mean for Christians who want to minister to needy people? It means that not only individuals must be changed, but legal, social, political systems must be changed as well. 96. While Keller tries to say that a balance must be struck, his former words remain extreme, and unbalanced. Trying to extend Christ's lordship over society may seek to use legislation that supposedly helps the poor, that, to use Keller's words earlier in the book, Destroys any impulses to mercy. 97. From a Christian standpoint, it might be said that God uses individualism as a control mechanism to limit the ability of one man to subjugate his will onto others for a seemingly collective cause. In economic terms, the tyranny of both petty and great tyrants is limited by the competition of individualism in the market. Keller continues to make broad, sweeping statements about economic systems neither capitalism nor communism can bring justice to the poor. 98. This may be the case but setting both of these systems as antithetical to justice is neither edifying nor helpful. Neither of these terms has been clearly defined by Keller as economic systems. Keller moves into the political realm and denounces both conservatism and liberalism without defining either, American conservatism is no alternative, for it is just as rationalistic and individualistic. 99, again, none of these is clearly defined, even though some attributes are listed. He states that conservatism tends to be blind to the systemic, corporate structures of greed and selfishness that create poverty, but then ignores the fact that the capitalist system, endorsed by conservatives, alleviates poverty more than any other system in the history of the world. 100. A famous control case of the difference between capitalism and socialism is that of Hong Kong turned rich and capitalist as a territory of the British Empire for decades, and the rest of China, a gap which is beginning to change as Hong Kong becomes less politically stable in nature. 101. Keller ties the idea of rent subsidy to the Good Samaritan to make it more persuasive. 102, 179 pages into his book about mercy to the poor, Keller provides a definition of poverty, poverty, and, one, the condition of hopelessness to. An inability to change one's life. 103, while these definitions may stir heartstrings of those already regenerated, it is hopelessly vague. You cannot manage what you cannot measure, and the very definition of poverty is notoriously difficult to even attempt, and as Thomas Sowell says in the quest for cosmic justice, getting others to think of themselves as victims does not induce self-sufficiency. 104. Keller also mentions child labor laws as being positive, but seems ignorant of the negative costs of coddling 105, and creating an environment in which children are rendered less capable of doing work as adults. 106. Keller states that the church should be willing to work with agencies as long as the message is not compromised, but provides no mechanism to make sure that this does not happen. 107, Keller then uses It's a Wonderful Life 108 as an example to follow. The Foundation for Economic Education states 109, that said movie portrays the producer as the villain, who in reality is the hero, who makes the lives of the poor better. Keller quotes John Perkins stating that the system perpetuates and widens the gap between rich and poor. 110. Keller's view of politics, and the ability to use it for good, remains romantic and questionable. His view is similar to exalting a noble savage, who will destroy the evil system of business exploitation. 111. In contrast to Keller, Wayne Grudem in Business to the Glory of God states that competition is God's way of putting people in the place where they can most glorify Him. Greater than competition is fundamentally good, and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. As with other aspects of business that we have considered, so it is with competition. The evil and distortions that have sometimes accompanied competition have led people to the conclusion that competition is evil in itself, but this is not true. 112. The grading system of the market guides society and helps students to find what they are good at doing. In Christian terms, Masking the reality that individuals were given diverse sets of talents by asserting equality over God's diversity may glorify God in the long run, but it is unlikely to please him. Romanticizing failing businesses may feel good in the short run, but will likely hurt the poor in the long run. In economic terms, imposing a vision of economic equality onto others through central planning is likely to hurt the poor and create greater inequality. Keller again strays into Marxian thinking when he dichotomizes business and community. Greater than, 1. Corporations exist to serve the public for a profit. Cooperatives exist to serve its members at cost. Those who use a coupon it. 2. Corporations are controlled by money, with each share getting one vote. Cooperatives are controlled by people, with each member getting one vote. 3. In corporations, profits are paid to the stockholder in proportion to holding, and cooperatives, surplus earnings are distributed to members in proportion to patronage. 113 saying that cooperatives serve its members at cost is marketing. Saying that corporations are controlled by money is another way of dehumanizing businessmen. Moreover, voting and democracy are not inherently virtuous, as evident by the American Founders Association of Democracy with Mob Rule. 114. Keller's view of proper economic exchange seems dangerously close to Marx's assertion that economic exchange is to be distributed from each according to ability to each according to his need by the visible hand of government rather than what Adam Smith originally called the invisible hand of God. From this perspective, Keller acts as a skeptic of the invisible hand of God and the economy through the price system, which is the original phrase that the founder of economics, Adam Smith, used in one of his books. 115. According to Hayek, it is the price system which allows men to serve one another better. 116. Keller's views on money are at odds with the economic understanding of money. Keller does not merely suggest cooperatives, but asserts that churches need to help co-ops get started, which offer far more reasonable price than most corporations as if church-owned businesses were inherently more moral businesses. 117. It is likely that any businessman reading these words would consider his profession intrinsically less moral, but this is a distortion. Business is intrinsically good in itself, but it can be corrupted, according to Grudem. Again, Keller dichotomizes economic activity of the church and business, as if the church's economic activity heals the poor, while business's economic activity make the poor poorer, while providing no evidence that this is the case. The evidence he provides earlier in the book falls apart upon analysis. All of this flows from the presumption that profit is evil. This could be seen as an outgrowth of the fortress church mentality, in which a dichotomy is set up between the world and the church in an unedifying manner, which exalts morally the church above business. Wayne Grudem in his book, Business to the Glory of God, states that profit is good and mentions how Christ portrays Himself as a businessman who requires His servants to make profit. Greater than earning a profit is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities for glorifying God, but also many temptations to sin. Seeking profit therefore, or seeking to multiply our resources, is seen as fundamentally good. Not to do so is condemned by the Master when He returns. The ability to earn a profit thus results in multiplying our resources while helping other people. It is a wonderful ability that God gave us, and is not evil or morally neutral, but is fundamentally good. Through it, we can reflect many of God's attributes such as love for others, wisdom, sovereignty, and planning for the future. 118. For Keller, profit is highly questionable. For Grudem, profit is fundamentally good. By contrast with Grudem, Keller eventually exhorts to political means. Greater than intervention for justice, the final form of social reform is legal or political intervention. Parachurch groups, can use political power to change social structure. 119. This skirts dangerously close to Marxism. While Keller mentions the dangers of being associated with an ideology, he does not mention the possibility that the political action will take over the church so that the church becomes a function of the political cause, as the theologian C.S. Lewis warns in Screwtape Letter 23. When Keller mentions some views that the Church has about evangelism and social concern, he states that this first is, the ministry of mercy and social justice is the only legitimate function of the Church in its mission to the world. 120. Keller explicitly neither confirms nor denies this view. The term social justice is and remains undefined in this book. By associating the term with mercy, he implies that to not do social justice is sin. 121. Keller mentions that the World Council of Churches stated that social concern is evangelism, in Keller's words. 122 While he distinguishes between acts of word and deed, he seems to imply that social concern means the church's concern for people, which he often sets against business's concern for profits. He then states that evangelism and social concern are inseparable. 123 He also quotes Isaiah 113 to 15 and then paraphrases it as the following: Orthodoxy without social concern is not orthodoxy. 124. This word remains undefined. It is so dangerous to use words like social that have an appearance of definition, that the Osteron economist F. A. Hayek dedicated two pages in his book, The Fatal Conceit, to listing all of the words to which the word social can be attached to drain them of all meaning. 125. F. A. Hayek went so far as to state the undefined nature of the word social in the extreme. Greater than the noun society misleading as it is, is relatively innocuous compared with the adjective social, which has probably become the most confusing expression in our entire moral and political vocabulary. This has happened only during the past hundred years, during which time its modern usages, and its power and influence, have expanded rapidly from Bismarckian Germany to cover the whole world. The confusion that it spreads, within the very area wherein it is most used, is partly due to its describing not only phenomena produced by various modes of cooperation among men, such as in a society, but also the kinds of actions that promote and serve such orders. From this latter usage it has increasingly been turned into an exhortation, a sort of guide word for rationalist morals intended to displace traditional morals, and now increasingly supplants the word good as a designation of what is morally right. 126. Keller's replacing Isaiah's words about justice with social concern being an integral part of orthodoxy clearly fit this pattern of social being treated as synonymous with good if social meant having to do with people, then what is social would be tainted with sin. A similar linguistic parallel is in Aristotle's politics, which comes from the Greek word for city polis. In that sense, everything regarding humans is social, and everything that is social is political, but the use of language in this way as Keller does tends to burn more than warm. The theologian C.S. Lewis warns in Screwtape Letter 23 of the dangers of a movement started in the church swallowing up the church and the gospel. Greater than certainly, We do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow over into their political life, for the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement, but, failing that, as a means to anything, even to social justice. The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands and then work him on to the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. 127. Notice that Lewis explicitly puts a value of social justice in the mouth of a demon who is trying to subtly corrupt the church. Similarly, the economist Thomas Sowell states that social justice is the opposite of justice, and is instead an ideology of envy, that hurts the poor. 128. Again, Keller speaks as if all justice is social. Lewis casts doubt on this proposition, and the economist Thomas Sowell states that social justice is the opposite of justice. Sowell also states that Bertrand Russell's idea of social justice requires an international governing body to own all land and raw materials. 129. Unfortunately, it appears that Keller is partially advocating for a modified fortress church mentality. Because Keller's book functions as a Jeremiah, it is not surprising that some black or white fallacies are used, if all organs do not mature and grow, none of them can. 130. It is not obvious that this is true in a more than metaphorical sense, but people believe in a message mostly for non-rational reasons. 131, this phrase has the potential to undermine what Keller has said for the entire book. If people believe a message for mostly non-rational reasons, the question could be asked whether this is the motivation for what Keller has been writing in this entire book. Keller continues to assert that ministries of mercy are essential, deeds of mercy, the ministry of felt needs, Is an absolutely critical component in our communication of the gospel. 132. While it is true that Jesus healed the sick, it is also true that he whipped money changers out of the temple. While it is true that both could be seen as ministries of mercy, language is not usually used in this manner. The existence of one organ, or a part of the body, has the implication that it has a specialized purpose. Stating that ministries of mercy is an absolute responsibility for every person grinds against the idea that each part of the body has a specific purpose. In economic terms, the specialization of skills in the market means that more felt needs can be met than under a centralized form of control, which Keller tends to advocate. Keller conflates two ideas of living ascetically and reaching others. Greater than many middle-class people must put forth great effort to find the hurting because they we have chosen to live as far removed from human needs as we can. 133. He says that they must put forth effort, but also that they have chosen this way of life. The imperative is confused. Again, the intention of helping others and engaging in economic asceticism may or may not help the poor. Rich billionaires may help the poor without feeling any lack of means themselves. Empathy can paradoxically sometimes hurt others. The psychologist Paul Bloom illustrates in his book Against Empathy how gaining empathy for others in the short term may lead to negative long-term consequences by explaining the origin of the term dismal science for economics. Greater than consider why economics is sometimes called the dismal science. It's a derogatory description thought up by Thomas Carlyle in the 1800s, coined to draw a contrast with the gay science of music and poetry, not a gay science, I should say, like some we have heard of, no, a dreary, desolate and, indeed, quite abject and distressing one, what we might call, by way of eminence, the dismal science. Greater than. Greater than Carlyle has a specific issue in mind, a case where he wanted to ridicule economists for objecting to something that was the subject of considerable feeling and heart, something that Carlyle had defended with great emotion. Greater than. Greater than what was this issue that the economists were so negative about? Slavery. Carlyle was upset because the economists were against slavery. He argued for the reintroduction of slavery in the West Indies and was annoyed that the economists railed against is. Think about this when you're tempted to scorn economists and the cool approach they take to human affairs— and when you hear people equating strong feelings with goodness and cold reason with nastiness. In the real world, as we've seen, the truth is usually the opposite. 133.5 Throughout Keller's book, he claims that to help the poor, with their burden one must become poor oneself. In a similar vein, it is worth remembering that the passion with which Thomas Carlyle denounced economics was used to mock economists' denouncement of slavery. Returning to Keller's book, Keller states that there should be no strings attached to aid at first, but that more is required. Greater than we want to look at your income, living expenses, and other problems. We are not doing this to be nosy, but we really want to help you for the long run. So we need to look at your whole life. 134. While this has a veneer of concern, it is concerning the level to which in other ways Keller places the church as inherently exalted over other domains, like business. This exaltation can easily leak over into the abuse of power if given this much information. The removal of aid Keller compares to a doctor performing surgery, a doctor sometimes has to cut you to heal you. 135. While this statement is true, his use of this imagery could be seen as mildly unsettling. Keller's exaltation of the church in economic matters seriously damages his credibility to deal with the effects of sin. Keller states that mercy must sometimes be terminated, at some point, rejection and hostility will mean that, in mercy, we must terminate our mercy. 136. While Keller is speaking about termination of mercy to someone who rejects the gospel and is hostile toward it while receiving mercy, this terminology is, again, odd. To borrow Thomas Sowell's phrase, Keller's sitting in emotional judgment on business again raises questions about what exactly qualifies for this aid-cutting practice. 137. F. A. Hayek states that the ability to do either good or bad is dependent on freedom. Greater than what our generation is in danger of forgetting is not only that morals are of necessity a phenomenon of individual conduct but also that they can exist only in the sphere in which the individual is free to decide for himself and is called upon voluntarily to sacrifice personal advantage to the observance of a moral rule. Outside the sphere of individual responsibility there is neither goodness nor badness, neither opportunity for moral merit nor the chance of proving one's conviction by sacrificing one's desires to what one thinks right. Only where we ourselves are responsible for our own interests and are free to sacrifice them has our decision moral value. We are neither entitled to be unselfish at someone else's expense nor is there any merit in being unselfish if we have no choice. 138. There is no merit in being forced to abide by excessive rules. When these rules dissolve away, inner corruptions may spill out of what soul calls presumptuously self-appointed moral exemplars. 139. Keller begins the book by exhorting the church to help the poor, without defining the word very precisely. While some of Keller's practical advice on charity may be useful, his dichotomy of the church and charity over business and money leads to a fortress church mentality that exalts the church over others. Unfortunately, this dichotomy leads to serious unintended totalitarian and ascetic tendencies if applied to politics and economics. It might be said that Keller is a monetary Gnostic, because he is suspicious of money as a tool for evil, and cautions everyone to have as little of it as possible. Gnostics devalue the physical world in favor of a Neoplatonic spiritual realm, and Keller mirrors this in his view of money. Throughout his book, Keller spiritualizes and mystically sublimates intangibles into essential value and devalues money and property rights his limited understanding of economics and business leads to a categorical mistake that leads to an excessive priority on intentions in the economic realm. He often assumes for himself a cosmic vision on economic matters which does not take into account the subjective value inherent in economic transactions. Inevitably, serious consequences accrue from castigating businesses as being run by money, which is viewed as morally suspect by him and not run by people. While there may be some personal advantages to pursuing an ascetic life of extreme monetary mortification, applying this broadly to the macro order of an entire economic system has serious consequences. It should not be forgotten that the parable of the talents portrays Christ as a businessman who invests money. If Keller's views on money and business were applied to the macro order, people would be less capable of being good or bad because of the imposition of superficial rules. Works cited. 0. Soul, Thomas. The Quest for Cosmic Justice. New York, Free Press, 1996, 22. 1. Keller, Timothy. Ministries of Mercy, The Call of the Jericho Road, 1989. Phillipsburg, P&R Publishing Company, 1997. 2. Ibid, 16-17. 3. Ibid, 17-18. 4. Ibid, 18, 20-21. 5. Soul, 39. 6. Soul, Thomas. Discrimination and Disparities. New York, Basic Books, 2018, 97. 7. Soul, Thomas. Discrimination and Disparities. NAR. Robertson-Dean. 2018. Ashland, Blackstone Audio, 2018, 350. Note, the audiobook has slightly differently wording than the Kindle version of this book. 8. Ibid. 402. 9. Ibid. 358. 10. Soul, Thomas. Civil Rights Rhetoric or Reality? 1984. Ashland, Blackstone Audio, 2007. 11. Soul, Thomas. Black Rednecks and White Liberals. New York, Encounter Books, 2006. 12. Keller, 26. 12.5. Keller, Timothy. Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. New York, Penguin Random House LLC, 2016, 122. 13, Ministries of Mercy, 35. 14, Ibid, 38-39. 15, Ibid, 41-47. 16, Ibid, 41-42. 17, Ibid, 42. 18, Ibid, 43. 19, Ibid, 46. 20, Ibid, 13. 21. The Westminster Larger Catechism. The Westminster Larger Catechism. Reformed Theology A Puritan's Mind. Access June 8, 2021. https colon slash slash www.apuritansmind.com slash Westminster standard slash Larger Catechism slash. 22. Soul, Thomas. Marxism. New York, Morrow, 1985, 27. 23. Keller, 13. 24, Ibid, 54. 25, Ibid, 56. 26, Ibid, 59. 68. 27, Ibid, 59. 28, Ibid, 60. 29, Ibid, 59. 61. 30, Jones, Mark. Knowing Christ. Edinburgh, Banner of Truth Trust, 2015, 144. 31, Jones, Mark. Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest. Phillipsburg, New Jersey, P&R Pub, 2013, 69-70. 32, Ibid, 71. 33, Keller, 61. 34, Soul, Thomas. The Quest for Cosmic Justice. New York, Free Press, 1996, 22. 35, Keller, 64. 36, IBID, 70. 37, IBID, 71. 38, IBID, 71-72. 39, IBID, 71. 40, IBID, 73. 41, Soul. 55-56. 42, Keller, 74. 43, Hayek, Friedrich. The Fatal Conceit. 1988. London, Routledge, 1992. 114-116. 44. Plutarch's Lives. The translation called Dryden's. Corrected from the Greek and revised by A. H. Clough, in 5 volumes, Boston, Little Brown & Co., 1906. https colon slash slash old org slash title slash Clough Plutarch's Lives Dryden Trans Volume 1 hash Plutarch underscore 1014-01 underscore 285. 45. Cornford, Francis, Trans. The Republic of Plato. 1941. London, Oxford University Press, 1945. 45.5. Smith, Adam. An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. 1776. Access July 14, 2021. https colon slash 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 files slash 3300 h of an hour slash 3300 hour 46, Keller, 76, 78, 123. 46.5, Hayek, Friedrich. The Fatal Conceit. 1988. London, Routledge, 1992, 81. 47, Keller, 123. 48, Hayek, Friedrich Avon. The Road to Serfdom. 1944. Chicago, The University of Chicago Press, 1994. 49, Keller, 77. 50, Walmart.org. Walmart.org. Access June 10, 2021. https colon slash slash walmart.org slash. 51, Sol 166. 52, Kilgannon, Corey. Queens landlord convicted in plot to kill two tenants. The New York Times. December 8, 2004. Access June 12, 2021. HTTPS colon slash slash www.nytimes.com slash 2004 slash 12 slash 08 slash NY region slash Queens landlord convicted in plot to kill two tenants.html. 53, Keller, 77. 54, gary SPQR A History of Ancient Rome. NAR. Philadelphia Charlotte Hall, Recorded Books, 2015. 54.5, Smith, Adam, David Deish's Raphael, and Alexander Lyon mcphee the Glasgow edition of the works and correspondence of Adam Smith, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 1759, Indianapolis, Liberty Fund, 1982, 88, 55, Keller, 77, 56, Lewis, Clive, The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses, 1949, New York, Harper Collins Publishers, 1980. 1 to 13 57 Keller 82 100 125 58 Ibid 89 59 Ibid 96 60 Ibid 97 60.5 Ibid 98 61 Ibid 129 62 Ibid 134 63 Ibid 135 64 Ibid, 136. 65, Ibid, 137. 66, Ibid, 138. 66.5, Ibid, 139. 67, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglas, an American Slave. 1845. NAR. Jonathan Reese. Connecticut, Tantor Audio, 2007. 68, Allett, Patrick. The Rise and Fall of the British Empire. Chantilly, The Great Courses, 2013. Soul, Thomas. NAR, Tom Weiner. Intellectuals in Society. 2009. Ashland, Blackstone Audio, 2012. 69, Keller, 143 144. 70, Rudham, Wayne. NAR, Maurice England. Business for the Glory of God, The Bible's Teaching on the Moral Goodness of Business. 2003. Old Saybrook, Christian Audio, 2012. Grudem, Wayne. Nar, Business for the Glory of God, The Bible's Teaching on the Moral Goodness of Business. Wheaton, Crossway Books, 2003. 71, Soul, Thomas. The Quest for Cosmic Justice. New York, Free Press, 1996, 51-67. 72, Keller, 151. 73, Keller, 157. 74, Westminster Larger Catechism, Question 42. 75, Keller, 160. 76, Ibid, 166, 172. 77, Ibid, 163. 78, Ibid, 174. 79, Aristotle. The Politics. T. A. Sinclair, Trans. 1962. New York, Penguin Books, 1992, 80. 80, Keller, 175. 81, Ibid, 176. 82, Hayek, Friedrich Avon. The Road to Serfdom. 1944. Chicago, the University of Chicago Press, 1994, 52-53, 215. 83, Ibid, 57, 67. 84, Ibid, 74 85 ibid 75 86 ibid 88 87 ibid 152 to 153 88 ibid 154 89 ibid 161 to 162 90 ibid 164 91 ibid 166 92 ibid 169 93, IBID, 172-173. 94, IBID, 174. 95, IBID, 217-244. 96, Keller, 176. 97, IBID, 176, 136. 98, IBID, 177. 99, IBID. 100, IBID. 101, Cohen, Tyler. Modern Principles of Economics. 5th edition. New York, Worth Publishers, 2020, 409. Lyons, John, and Francis Yoon. Do we need to be in Hong Kong? Global companies are eyeing the exits. The Wall Street Journal. June 7, 2021. Access June 12, 2021. HTTPS colon slash slash www.wsj.com slash articles slash Hong Kong Global Companies Leaving Protest China Crackdown 11622998192. 102, Keller, 179. 103, Ibid. 104, Seoul, 139. 105, Lukianoff, Greg, and Jonathan Height. The Coddling of the American Mind, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. New York, Penguin Press, 2018. 106, Keller, 181. 107, Ibid, 183. 108, It's a Wonderful Life. Dear. Frank Copra. Perf. James Stewart. RKO Radio Pictures, 1946. 109, Mullen, Tom. Old Man Potter Lived a Wonderful Life, Tom Mullen. Fee Freeman Article. December 8, 2016. Access June 10, 2021. https colon slash slash fee dot org slash articles slash Old Man Potter Lived a Wonderful Life slash 110, Keller, 185. 111, Soul, 120. 112, Grudem, 61, 82. 113, Keller, 186. 114, The Federalist. 1788. Indianapolis, Oil Liberty Fund, 2001, 44, 46, 48, 63, 257. 115, Smith, Adam, David Daish's Raphael, and Alexander Lyon-McPhee. The Glasgow edition of the works and correspondence of Adam Smith. The Theory of Moral Sentiments. 1759, Indianapolis, Liberty Fund, 1982-184. Klein on the Theory of Moral Sentiments, Episode 1 and Overview. EconLib. Access June 11, 2021. HTTPS colon slash slash www.econtalk.org slash on the Theory of Moral Sentiments Episode 1 and Overview slash 116, Hayek, Friedrich. The Use of Knowledge in Society. 1945. Library of Economics and Liberty. American Economic Review. 35, number 4. Pages 519-30. American Economic Association. Web April 30, 2016. HTTP colon slash slash www.aconlib.org slash library slash essays slash hike. KNW1.HTML. 117, Keller, 187. In Christian Terminology, Keller implies that the economic work of the Church is inherently more spiritually meritorious than economic work of business. This grinds against his understanding of all works as menstruous garments. 118, Grudem, 27, 41-45, 82. 119, Keller, 189. 120, Ibid, 108. 121, Ibid, 110. 122, Ibid, 111. 123, Ibid 112. 124, Ibid 114. 125, Hayek, Friedrich. The Fatal Conceit. 1988. London, Routledge, 1992, 114-116. 126, Ibid. 114. 127, Lewis, C. S. The Screwtape Letters. New York. HarperCollins Publishers, 2001, Letter 13. 128, Soul, Thomas. The Quest for Cosmic Justice. New York, Free Press, 1996, 77-79. 129, Ibid, 104. 130, Keller, 209. 131, Keller, 212. 132, Ibid, 215. 133, Ibid, 221. 133.5, Bloom, Paul. Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. New York, HarperCollins Publishers, 2016, 112. 134, Keller, 227. 135, Ibid, 228. 136, Ibid, 229. 137, Soul, 149. 138, Hayek, Friedrich A. von. The Road to Serfdom. 1944. Chicago, the University of Chicago Press, 1994, 231. 139, Sol 187.